in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. It is 100% real. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. Hello, and welcome to the Curious Dimension podcast. I am your host, Matt Barone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sacred geometry, ancient civilizations, esoteric texts, and wisdom, and what I consider to be the biggest story of human history, UFO disclosure. These are big topics that have many different avenues of research and study, but also have many intersections within each other. Today, I will be speaking with Scott Onstott. Scott is an architect, a teacher, an author of over 20 books. He's the co-host of the podcast, The Geometer's Compass. He has a bachelor's in architecture from UC Berkeley. He is the creator of the film Secrets in Plain Sight that's been viewed over 11 million times on YouTube. He is the founder of the Sacred Geometry Academy. He's also created several online courses for computer-aided design, information modeling, and 3D visualization. It's my great pleasure to introduce Scott Onstott. All right, we're recording, Scott. How are you? Good. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. Um, so for people that don't know you, Scott, maybe you could just talk a little bit about who you are, what you're about, and um, just let people kind of get to know you. Sure. So um, I have a degree in architecture. I started out my career doing architecture and engineering in San Francisco. I segued over to teaching architects and engineers software in the 90s. I did that for like seven years in brick and mortar classrooms. So I was very well acquainted with a certain aspect of geometry at the time, which in retrospect, now I would call the, quali uh, the quantitative aspect that is measuring, being precise, making buildings. And then my wife and I moved to a remote island in Canada in the early 2000s where I've been ever since. And that gave me kind of the flexibility to have more time. And also being away from a major urban center gave me more, honestly, more ability to think my own thoughts. I feel like when you're in a city, you're kind of weighed down by the pressure of others' expectations and the need to make a living is really bearing on you because you know everything costs money in a city. Yeah. And so then I, I created this documentary film called Secrets in Plain Sight in 2010 um, that was kind of a passion project that millions of people have seen. It's really just a hobby that I did for my own satisfaction. And it, it had a really huge impact in that it, it introduced me to a lot of really interesting people in the world, and it's still kind of going. It's on my website for free. You can watch it. It's a five and a half hour documentary series. And then from there, I got into the, the qualitative aspect of geometry because all the patterns I was finding in the world were pointing to the importance of sacred geometry. So then I, um, I partnered with a, a friend of mine, Jeff Fitzpatrick in Ireland, and we did some workshops in person in Ireland and they were really transformative and amazing. And so I was really deeply drawn into the qualitative aspects of geometry. This is something that I'd actually been doing since the early 2000s, drawing crop circles in my spare time and um, just really loving geometry. And I thought I was just kind of a, a nerd or something because I, I loved geometry, the mathematical aspect of geometry in high school. I really took to the quantitative aspect in AutoCAD and Revit, and now I'm, I'm into the the qualitative aspects, that is how the geometry feels, how, where it takes you emotionally and, and dare I say, even spiritually. Um, yeah, and definitely. so this is something that I felt really alone at first for years doing this because I thought, I don't know what, maybe this is just my own idiosyncratic experience, you know, but then I, I crossed my life path. I met a bunch of people that this was working for them too. And I discovered that there's this whole kind of hidden dimension to geometry that most people overlook or aren't even aware of, or actually dismiss outright without even looking into it. 
for some reason. And that dismissal would be probably because to, to get to the core of what you're kind of studying, it takes work. It takes some time. It takes some attention. Um, so yes. it's easy to kind of dismiss the findings that you can uncover or rediscover. Yeah, I think that these days with our instant gratification and our attention spans that are like a minute, it has to be a really cool video that to hold our attention for up to a minute. Mm -hmm. um, people aren't willing to put in the time to read like one of John Michelle's books, you know, from cover to cover or to get really into metrology and, and study it for months um, to uncover the dimensions of the Great Pyramid and understand how that interconnects with Stonehenge and with uh, squaring the circle and the Roman pantheon and how we've kind of lost the plot on geometry largely in our culture these days. But it's, it's fine because it can re be rediscovered. Mm -hmm. It's always there, encoded in these structures. And it's there for those who have the interest and the aptitude and the, the luxury of the time that it takes to work on yourself and, and uncover these truths, these secrets in plain sight, you know? Yeah. And for anybody out there who has not watched your first volume one, which I think is three hours and 40 some minutes of, I mean, you take the audience on a trip around the world, decoding the archaeoastronomy and the alignments and the sacred geometry of structures going from Egypt to Washington, DC. You've really done an amazing work there of that. So if anybody hasn't watched that, I highly recommend watching Secrets in Plain Sight. And that's on YouTube and on your website as well. I mean, it's clear to me that the ancients were deeply involved in creating their world around this ancient canon of metrology and numerology, because these numbers that you're decoding are coming up over and over again. And, and like you said, it's easy for somebody to dismiss this, but once you start digging in, you realize that this is kind of done on purpose. You know, measurements like the mile, the mile is an arbitrary number, right? It comes from the average pace of a human being, which is about 5.28 feet. And then some point somewhere along the line, somebody said, okay, a thousand of those is a mile. We'll call it the mile. Um, I think it was the Romans, by the way. Um, yeah, I was going to say, maybe you could speak to a little bit of the history of the metrology on, on that, if you want to go down that yeah, road. The, the word mile actually comes from a, a Latin word. Um, I forget what it is, but it, it's like M-I-L-L-E, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, it comes from a thousand paces. Um, it means a thousand. And, and so a thousand paces is a mile. And I just watched a, recently, I watched a really funny... Um, SNL skit about metrology. It was hilarious. And they were just oh, like, yeah, it was George Washington, you know, that's and character. Orgazi. He's a stand up comedian. That's yeah, really, so I thought funny. of you when I saw that. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was just like how arbitrary everything was. Like a mile, it will be 5,280 feet. And people are like, what, what? what, what are you talking about? <laughs> and uh, it was kind of like where we are today. We don't understand how everything is connected and it just seems arbitrary and meaningless to us now, but it's all based on the dimensions of the earth. And it comes down to us from, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, and it can be forgotten and rediscovered later because it, you, all you have to do is measure the earth accurately and you can get the meter from measuring the meridian. Um, it's 10,000 kilometers from the equator to the North Pole. You know, that's what initially defined the metric system. Well, I'd say that the, the French, in, you know, decided on that measure in around 1799. Okay. But I think that that measure was, was used, um, in ancient times. Um, and we forgot all about it, but it was read recovered essentially by measuring the earth again and, and applying base 10 to it, which is an obvious thing to do, mm. you know, and, um, and getting a unit from that. So I don't see it as an aberration. I just see it as a, a logical outcome. And in fact, geometry means earth measure. And we often forget that. And we don't think, we think geometry is just some drawings on paper that you learn in high school, 
but it, what's, what it kind of blows my mind is you can make these simple drawings on paper that encode the true dimensions of the moon and the earth and squaring the circle and so much more and the great pyramid slope angle in, all in one diagram that John Michelle published in 1973. And obviously this was, wasn't something he invented because it's the same diagram is encoded in the design of Stonehenge and the Roman Pantheon and the Great Pyramid itself. So obviously this was a diagram that was known, very well known, but we forgot and it had to be rediscovered. And John Michel, uh, I mean, would you agree that he's probably responsible for a resurgence of the rediscovering of a lot of this information? Yeah, he's sort of like the grandfather of the earth mysteries or something, you know? Um, he's no longer with us. He's an inspiration. He continues to be an inspiration for many. Um, and I would also add Keith Critchlow is also another person who's no longer with us, who's also a great source of inspiration mm -hmm. about geometry and Islamic patterns and cathedral design and so much more besides. The ground has sort of been laid by this earlier generation who's now passed away. But now it's up to us to kind of carry that torch forward, I think, mm -hmm. and show people how interesting all of this is and how it interconnects as above, so below. And it connects to the human scale. It connects into your own life. Mm -hmm. And it connects you with larger architectural complexes. It connects you with alignments across the earth. It connects you with the cosmos itself. And maybe, I'm just, I'm just riffing. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe this is a good time for, to explain to everybody exactly what is sacred geometry and how it kind of differs from, from textbook Euclidean geometry that everybody learns in high school and how it kind of goes to another level. So the Euclidean geometry is very important in building a sense of rationality. And I, I recently went back and relearned kind of all of math up to calculus BC through Khan Academy. I had learned all of this when I was a teenager and young adult, and I, you know, it's been decades. So I went back and relearned it. And so that, for me, I would say that I would characterize that type of knowledge as very left-brained. It's very focused and concentrative and, and um, hard because in a sense, because you have, you have to really concentrate on it. Okay. But it, it gives you this, it unpacks a sense of clear thinking and rationality in the mind that is very important. And it's the, the purpose of learning that is not for the geometry, in my opinion, it's for the clear thinking. Right. And people miss that. They think, oh, why do I care about trigonometry or whatever? I'm not going to need that. Well, you're going to need some clear thinking and right. rational thinking in your life, no matter what you do. And so that is a wonderful way of developing that. And then I would say that the sacred geometry is a totally different channel of our awareness. It's the qualitative aspect. And, and if I had to characterize it, I would say it's either right-brained or maybe even heart-centered. And so you're approaching it with a totally different dimension of your psyche. And it reaches deeply into you in a way that the analytical aspect of, of Euclidean geometry doesn't seem to do at all. So, but it, it's like meditating on the shapes, um, gets you into that space. And that's something and that so, I try to teach my students is, you know, when you're working with the compass and the straight edge, this is one of the more fun things that we actually do. And you should treat it as kind of a meditative practice because it could unlock some things in your mind and help engage you a little bit further. And what, I think people forget that like where I'm describing two aspects of geometry so far, the concentrating aspect, and then more of the, the kind of contemplating aspect. But there's another one, which is the, um, quantitative aspect, like an architect draws up the blueprints and uses geometry in their practice every day to draw things up and make accurate depictions of things that are yet to be built or depictions of things that already exist and we want to remodel or revise them in some way, we can't do it without geometry. So there's a whole host of professions that this, this can be used in, but that aspect of geometry is, is it's a little bit more like an easygoing math because when you're, 
an architect, you really aren't having to do much math, but it's more about the aesthetic appreciation and the beauty inherent in the geometry that you get into through that channel. Mm-hmm. And also the kind of mundane complexity of all of the building systems and the dimensions and the administration and the construction, it's all very complicated and, and, um, it has a more mundane quality. The, um, the sacred aspect of geometry has, a has a sacred quality, uh, an, an exquisiteness to it. Right. But okay. what I want to say is we, we forget that it's the same geometry in all three of these instances. What, what changes is our perception of it. Mm-hmm. It, the way we're approaching it is, is totally up to us. And, and so I would recommend people learn a little of each one of those approaches and see which ones they really resonate with. And don't just pick one. I'd say that to be a well-rounded individual over time, you, you should really kind of expand on all fronts, you know, and experience all of these things. Um, because geometry is a unique subject in all of, in all subjects, because um, I believe the universe is made out of geometry. It underlies all things. Geometry is the the visible manifestation of mathematics, and uh, mathematics is what everything is based on. The atom is made is a bunch of quantum numbers in a in an equation, and there's really nothing more to matter than math. So. I don't know. Um, all is number. All is number. And, and also geometry and meditating on these shapes is a way of going inward. And it's a very efficient vehicle for going to some of the deepest layers of the psyche. So it's, it's, that's why it's a unique subject because it's, it's used to look outside of you and measure the world and also to go inside and experience the interior. And there's no, I don't think there's anything else like that. Maybe music has that kind of quality to reach within you deeply and also to reach everyone in the, in the whole audience and have them outside of you resonate with it. So th- that's the closest parallel I can draw. Music would be geometry. It would be the movement of number and time. And geometry is the movement of number and space. So again, right. all is number. It just it depends on how you're looking at it, right? Right, exactly. And um, I, I guess I had a question. So if someone wanted to start, because I know sacred geometry is, is more of an experience. It's kind of difficult to explain. Um, but for the person who would really want to start with this, like, would you suggest someone looking at the, the, the ancient canon of number, metrology, or would you suggest someone start drawing like when you and jeff do your intro courses and you don't have to give away any trade secrets here if you don't want to but when you and jeff fitzpatrick do your kind of intro courses um where do you guys start with someone that's kind of a novice with this well we we try to cover like three different channels in in everything that we do so the first one would be like we'll sit down with everyone like i'm let's just kind of go through the arc of a in-person workshop okay so we would um, spend a day drawing a secret geometry diagram all together in the classroom, and everyone has their own little desk with their compass and the ruler and paper and pencil, and you feel like you're you're kind of a kid again, drawing again, right? And it, it's kind of fun in that aspect, but it requires a lot of concentration, and so we we really focus on that. But people only have a, a short atten- attention span. So I found that in addition to the concentration, we do that for a while and then we'll switch over to a slideshow that I do that's talking about the archetype that we're drawing. And that slideshow puts you in more of a contemplative frame of mind. You can kind of sit back and go like, oh yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And and, and it lets you kind of get more into the kind of appreciation mode and that kind of refreshes you because you can, there's only so much time anyone can stay really focused on, on a task until you kind of burn out, right? right? So we kind of alternate between that. And then we'll do a meditation that Jeff will lead with. He has these incredible visuals um, that he shows on the screen with, with great audio that he's selected. 
And he's actually commissioned artists to make both the visuals and the audio. And so what we'll do is we'll experience that. And then afterwards, well, we've set up the classroom such that everyone's sitting on a yoga mat at their little Ikea desk, which is like, I don't know, two feet off the ground. So you're kind of sitting cross-legged while you're drawing. And then you, and then you watch the, the visual meditation, and then you lie down and close your eyes on your yoga mat. And so that's when you go into the meditative state. And, and I find that that's, that's super refreshing. And so we go through these cycles of concentration, contemplation, and meditation, and then repeat. And we find that that really works well. And you can kind of do that all day long because you're getting everything that you need as you go through these cycles. Um, and I think we, we do that in maybe in a classroom, you, you know, you have a class with a certain teacher and you have to concentrate and then it's recess and you go out and you, and you kind of release the pressure and you are social or something, you know, And, and you, and you, you get that kind of contemplative aspect or something. And then in, I remember in like being a little kid, you'd have a nap time, right? And that would be really great. I, and as, as a, as a middle-aged uh, person now, I, I like to have a nap in the afternoon and I find it really refreshing. But, but during that nap, you get this kind of time where you get to contemplate what you've been doing that day. And you get this kind of in between waking and sleep time when, when sometimes inspiration will come to you. Mm-hmm. And I think that we would really be wise to integrate that into, even into the business environment where we have a time where we lay down and, re- and rest for 20 minutes is all you really need. And then you come back really revitalized. Um, um, yeah, so it's those three. And I think that everything kind of falls into threes in, in my philosophy as well, um, because that's how our minds are structured. And that's how, like, we have sensations, perceptions, and conceptions. Um, and we form even our governments with, um, you know, <clears throat> um, legislative, executive, and judicial, you know, because we're replicating the structure of our minds mm-hmm. in that. Um, with maybe without much self-reflection, but we just, we do that. And so that, you know? that, that draws me to an interesting question. Are we doing that intuitively or are we consciously aware of that? And that, and that can actually get into an even deeper question of, you know, some of the sacred architecture that we're finding, like how much of this is intentional and how much of this is what they were feeling. And, and well, I think that it's, it's difficult to say definitively, but we're complicated and we're not just in our heads. We're also in our hearts, in our bodies. and when you, when you say like, where we, where we aware of that, we might not have been cognitively aware of it, but we were definitely aware of it, like in our hearts or in our, in the tips of our fingers, you know? And I think we end up making these things oftentimes kind of unwittingly in a sense, but a deeper part of us knows exactly what we're doing. Right. And, um, And I would say like, if you take the example of a credit card and the aspect ratio of the rectangle of the credit card, it's 98% equal to a golden rectangle. And what that tells me is that it wasn't a mathematician who set out the proportions because it would have been a hundred percent accurate as a golden rectangle, but it was maybe a business executive or, um, um, someone who was a graphic designer or something like that, that decided on this proportion based on feeling. Right. And feeling what was the right proportion for this thing. Everyone's going to be carrying around with them. And they, they hit, they felt right into the golden rectangle, which is aesthetically pleasing. Aesthetically pleasing, but it, there was a little gap. And that allows us to have plausible deniability and say that what are you talking about? Golden rectangle. It clearly isn't. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really close. 98% is pretty, pretty close. Right. So I, if that was the, the geometric archetype that that was based on, right? Mm-hmm. Like for example, the piano has the length of the white keys are in a golden ratio with the length of the black keys, you know, and a lot of, uh, records on vinyl the 
the sticker in the middle is in a golden ratio with respect to the vinyl that's exposed. And, and so, you know, did, did a mathematician measure that and, and calculate? No, no, I don't believe it. I think someone just aesthetically mm -hmm. chose it because I, that's part of, that's part of our visual processing system. And I wrote a book on Leonardo da Vinci that kind of reveals that most of his paintings are based on the golden rectangle and like to a level that you wouldn't believe. And it's very accurate, like mm -hmm. a scientist would do. So it's not a, it's not a loose thing. It's precise. And so I think he started with the geometry mm -hmm. and then he clothed that in his genius of his ability to, you know, paint and, and make figures and make drama out of that geometry. But I think that the reason that we're drawn to his artwork so much and that he's the most famous artist in the world is because it's speaking to us directly through the golden ratio. And we're just like, oh yeah, that's super beautiful. Mm -hmm. To some degree I did there. Yeah. yeah. But I, I wrote this book years later mm. about Leonardo and I, I didn't know about Leonardo's use of the golden rectangle um, yeah. when I made that film. But um, it seems like we kind of lost the plot on that in art. You know, there was a lot of artists. It wasn't just Leonardo. It was also Michelangelo and it was artists for hundreds of years afterwards were using the golden rectangle in their compositions mm -hmm. it's kind of secretly. And maybe that's why we found them pleasing, but now art is a different thing altogether. And it's not, it's not even like that at all. So mm -hmm. again, we've kind of lost the, lost the thread on, on okay. that. Okay. And then we get away from that, which is, I mean, those numbers, those proportions, those come out of the human body. They come out of the measure of the earth. They come out of the measure of the cosmos from the sun to the moon. Like those numbers are there. I mean, you can, you can go and you can see that. Um, but then it seems like we kind of lose connection with that for a little bit. And then the, the pendulum kind of swings a little bit further away. And, and then we kind of get lost a little bit, but that seems like the most accurate way for human beings to exist in a world would be to emulate the world that you're living on and then that world in relation to the human body in relation to the stars see i think the the problem maybe the reason that we get away from that is when you look deeply into the world and you start to see patterns that are undeniably there it starts to suggest consciousness that it's not random, yeah. that there's a, there's a pattern, a blueprint, an uncanny resonance with certain numbers such that it starts to tread into the area of religion a little bit. And you start to wonder like, what am I finding out here? And I think that because science was birthed as a re reaction against religion, mm -hmm. And there's a hard division there between matters that we can weigh and measure and matters that are immaterial. Um, because science has been so helpful to our species, I think we are kind of afraid of seeing the consciousness that's the evidence of consciousness in the world. Right. Because that would imply a deeper pattern that we don't want to, we don't want to think about if we're wedded to materialism, but I don't know. I think that we're getting mature enough as a species to open up to that possibility and, and because materialism has been shown to be, um, just an approximation of reality that's useful, but We've known for a hundred years now with quantum physics that consciousness is inextricably part of reality, mm -hmm. but we haven't come to grips with that as a society even yet. So what does that say about materialism? How, where does consciousness fit into that? Where does it even come from? It's called, called the hard problem because it's, it doesn't make any sense from a materialistic point of view, that consciousness would even exist. And people that are rooted in that will dismiss it immediately. And it's very sticky. It's a, it's a very sticky point because it's an easy way out to say, well, this is all there is. The, the mind is in the brain. 
and there's, there's nothing else out there because it's elusive, but through quantum mechanics and advanced physics, we're rediscovering probably what was known a long time ago. Um, and you know, these bits of truths are coming out. I think, you know, advanced physics and maybe even individuals that were highly into plant medicines were, were really suspecting this, you know, 50 years ago. But now it seems like it's becoming a little bit more mainstream and it's slowly dripping out into the public that this may be uh, a part of our reality. I think so, yes. And I, I think that it was necessary for us to break away from religion as, as a society because religion had a stranglehold on anything that would be considered true or any even areas of research that could be looked into. So that was like, I don't know, 400 years ago or something, right? Mm -hmm. And now we threw out too much with that division mm -hmm. because, yeah, I think it's high time that we come back and examine some of these ideas with a scientific perspective, if you will, but it has to be an expanded perspective. I know Rupert Sheldrake wrote a, a great book about, um, science set free and 10 great ideas that science could be expanded on by looking into, into it in a more holistic way. Um, I don't know. The problem is, is it gets into kind of an ideology that's hardened in a lot of people kind of, um, so yeah, it, it, it requires people to think outside of the box oftentimes to connect the dots and I'm good at that, but I, I recognize that I'm kind of rare maybe, and that most people are either drawn to be an artist or a scientist, you know, mm. but I'm seeing value in both approaches, um, because they're, they're in fact, they're, they're getting at different things. It's sort of back to our earlier discussion about how geometry has three aspects and it, and most people just go into one, but why not just explore a little bit of all of the possibilities of what that's offering us, you know? And I think we're, we're greater for it, for that exploration. Um, yeah. It would appear to me that a marrying of those two ideas would be where we're kind of going so you can draw from both aspects and study both aspects yeah. but when you think about it, I'm, I'm i don't think i'd be i don't think i'd be satisfied being like a hardcore atheist scientist or a fundamentalist religion in a fundamentalist religion of some stripe because both are very similar in how close-minded they are and so I'm, I'm an advocate of things that are more open-minded, more exploratory, more like, you know, um, being open to things I don't know. How can you learn unless you're open to things that you don't know? Yeah, I don't know. That's true. And, and it's kind of, it, it's probably a good act on their part to kind of reconnect with the whole aspect of reality that they denied. But I'm not advocating belief in a in a higher power myself. I I just I just see the signature of consciousness written all over the universe. Yeah. And so I leave that up to you to fill in what does that mean? And I think that everyone fills in that story in their own way. Yeah. And I think that's an important part of each person's sort of hero's journey is to discover what's in that what's on your path in that distant land that you're journeying to, what do you find there in your own way, in your own words, what, and, and fill that in. Because if I was to tell you, it wouldn't, it would probably be more idiosyncratic to, to my life. Right. Personally. And it might not apply to you. And also if you discover all these things on your own, it's way more meaningful to you because there are things that you've done and you've experienced and you've, you've encountered, you know, that's why I think it's just a call that to go on a journey of discovery for each person. And, and, and I think that 
to do that, it's good to um, emphasize the mystery of it, that we don't know, that we're open. And there's that 98% exactness with the credit card relating to the golden rectangle. And you can say, you can deny that and say, that's your way out. That 2% gap right there is enough for you to say, there's, what are you talking about? There's nothing, this is just completely false. You're playing with numbers. Or it could be the enough of a correlation for you to see something there, but that's, that's really your business. And I don't want to get in the way of your business. That is your, your prerogative. And I like to guide people to see things in a certain way, but then I leave it up to them to decide what that means. I think that's essential because a lot of people make the mistake of saying, well, this is what it means. And, you know, and, and Not dangerous, I don't know that I, I don't, I think I would be diminished if I, if I claim to have certainty about what everything means, because I I'm just one guy, how could I know? And how could I even, I can't even convince myself that I know everything. So how could I convince you? And I think like Socrates was considered to be like the wisest man because he admitted that he just, just doesn't know. And I'd like to follow in his footsteps and say, I don't know. And I'd like to know, and let's talk about it and let's examine it and let's toss the ideas around because we're living in this mystery. Mm-hmm. We don't really know what it's all about, but I think we're better when we work together to kind of approach the mystery from myriad different angles and different viewpoints mm-hmm. to get at that. Um, I think we're, we're enriched by that. Um, and the problem with, that I see with, with a lot of belief systems, whether it's scientism or religion, is that each of them claim to know with certainty how it is. And when right there, they've just diminished their whole philosophy by, by that. Mm -hmm. Um, what's wrong with leaving that gap, leaving that space for the mystery to exist in? I think that's essential, you know, um. I can tell you a, a cool parallel that I found in three different domains. Um, so it's called what I call the gap. And I was drawn to this because the gap is about the same. I think it's, um, I think it's 0. 0.014 is the, 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 the Delta. And so if you look at the, the year is 365.242. And if you compare that to a full circle of 360 degrees, that's your gap. So it seems like in some way that the, the, the orbit of the earth around the sun is like a circle. And it, wouldn't it be pleasing if that was exactly 360 days, but it's not, it's off a little bit. It's that gap that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that that gap is the same as the Pythagorean comma in music, which is what is it? 12, I think it's 12 just perfect fifths to seven octaves mm-hmm. or vice versa. But it seems like in music that these things should be equal, but they're off by that same gap. And it makes me wonder like, wait a minute, maybe this gap is actually a feature. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe this bug on my iPhone is actually a feature, you know? Um, <laughs> And there was another one that has to do with the, the, the constants pi, phi, and E. And if you draw them in a triangle, it makes a almost perfect Pythagorean right triangle. Can you explain that to people? How would you draw that? Like each side length is pi, phi, and E? Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I can't remember, but I think, I think it must be that pi is the hypotenuse, right? It would be, yes. E is two point. Yeah. And then uh, I would be the height. Correct. And then if you draw that up and draw with a right angle, there's a tiny little gap in the top where the pi side is trying to meet up with the phi side. Mm-hmm. And that gap, if you run it through the Pythagorean equation, is the same delta as the other two phenomenon that I just discussed. And those three and numbers so- are in da Vinci's uh, squaring of the circle of the Vitruvian man, which... I uh, think so. 
Yeah. Well, so Robert Edward Grant, who I, I know you've spoken to before, he's got a great video on his site where he uses nothing but a compass and a ruler to recreate the Vitruvian man squaring the circle. And he's got three, he's got one circle and he's got three squares there. And one of the squares area equals E. And if you use one as the radius, one of the circles has an area of pi. And then the other one, the smaller circle has a perimeter, which is one half pi, which would be the circumference, uh, which would be, if you take the perimeter of that square, one length is one half pi. So multiply that times four and you get two pi, which is the circumference of the original circle. Yeah. And, um, it's not possible to form a rational, um, kind of equivalence between these numbers because pi and E are transcendental and there is no algebraic solution to them. And so it, I think Lindemann proved in the 19th century that you can't exactly square the circle because of the transcendental nature of pi. And so there's always going to be a gap in any attempt to square the circle. There's always going to be a little bit of a delta there. And so I'm seeing that 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 delta, that, that gap is a significant feature. And like we're discussing, that's where the mystery comes in. That's the gap that allows us to have something that isn't known. In fact, when you just think of pi itself, the relationship of the circle's diameter to its circumference, we can never solve pi. We can never come to the end of pi, even though we've calculated it to 50 trillion digits. It never stops. It never repeats. We'll never get to the bottom of it. Although we, we keep trying as if we're going to one day, oh yeah, 50 trillion and one, and ha, now it repeats. It, it's <laughs> never going to do that. So um, this in itself is an insoluble mystery that at the end of the day, we just have to say, well, let's just call that mystery pi. We'll bundle up all of the things we don't know about it, and we'll just call it with a label. And we'll call it pi. And then we'll use that as an approximation of this idea, this impossible idea that we can never really figure out. We'll just make it practical by giving it a label. And I think that we've done that with, with charge, with gravitation, with, um, with the photon. We, we just call it something, but we don't really know what it is. And, and, and so I think if we're honest, the smartest physicists would probably agree that we don't know everything about even the fundamentals and that there's a mystery in, in those things that are the bedrock of what we build up our whole science out of. And yeah, and I think we would just be more honest if, if we kind of come to grips with that unknowable mystery, you know, as something that's fascinating, but it seems to be, um, part of reality. It's like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle where you can't know exactly the position and momentum of a particle, both simultaneously. You can know one, but not the other. And fundamentally we can never get around that. We can never get around that mystery. Why can't we know them both? It seems like we should be able to. But we can't. And so we just have to give it a name. We'll call it the uncertainty principle and leave it at that. You know? <laughs> it's like all of science now measures about four to five percent of the total mass energy of the universe. So not it's very frustrating, I'm sure, that we don't really understand gravitation. Because if we did, we would have a better handle on the total mass energy of the universe than 4%. So, I mean, it's kind of a, it's great. I love it because it kind of is like, we don't know. So let help us try to figure this out. Mm -hmm. Let's work on it. Let's throw around the ideas. Let's move it forward. Can you imagine how straight jacketed we would be if we knew, if we or AI or God knew everything mm. and there was no mystery at all. It'd be super boring. Yeah. I don't think God would be happy with that even. 
No. Then what, I mean, what, then why make a universe if you know under. everything about it? What, why not have a little bit of surprise and novelty come up? You know? Um, like, that's what's cool. If you're writing a, a fiction as an author, the characters seem to take on a life of their own and you don't even know what they're going to do until you write it. Mm-hmm. That's the coolest part, right? Of, of making a universe is probably not even knowing where it's going to go and, and being enthralled with it. And, and the reason for that, I think, is that, um, is that gap or mystery. Speaking of gaps and mystery, I wanted to talk a little bit about something here and we can go as deep into this as you want, you know, certain crop circles that, that pop up around the world and whether you believe they're man-made or something else otherworldly is making them, I've got my opinions on that, but there is some stunning sacred geometry and high level of sophistication and some of these things that pop up overnight, squaring the circle, star tetrahedrons. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit of that, because I know John Michel had spoken about this and had decoded some of these, this phenomenon that pops up. Yeah. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that and what you think and, and maybe tie it to sacred geometry. Yeah. So I, I've been studying crop circles since the late nineties. And actually I attribute my secrets in plain sight film and much that happened after that to my exploration of these geometries and drawing them in the computer. And I think that just the act of drawing them from aerial photographs and trying to rationalize the geometry in some way and trying to figure out the basis for that geometry. It's not arbitrary. There's a, there's a geometric basis. Everything is interconnected. And when you can decode these circles and draw them up, it kind of works on your psyche in such a way that it's very ineffable process, but it, it somehow upgrades you in some way, I think. And I find that the geometry is the significant thing here. It's not the story that we tell ourselves about who made them or why. It's actually just the geometry. So it doesn't matter about these stories. I mean, the stories are interesting and whether al- maybe aliens made them in, in a ball of light or in a spaceship, maybe the military industrial complex is doing something that certainly there's a lot of black helicopters flying around the crop circles. Um, maybe they're investigating them themselves. Maybe there are hoaxers out there. There are, certainly are hoaxers making them in the field. You can hire companies to make them. Corporations yep. have done that with their own logo. Um, and there can also be the idea that a, a so-called hoaxer gets the idea for a certain design, but they don't even know where that idea came from. So like if I was an alien a spaceship, I would think the coolest way to make these things happen would be to implant the ideas in certain people's minds and have them go make them for me. Right. So, I mean, that's another way, or it could be that people are just tapped into the collective unconscious and they get these ideas out of the collective human soul to make a certain design in the field on a certain day. And there it is. And yet we, we are kind of mystified about the beauty and complexity of these geometries. And what really mystifies me is society's reaction to them. Well, it's that was cold where I was going to go next. You know, it's totally cold and it's like a hoax and we should dismiss it and don't look at this. It's a joke. Don't um, study it. Don't, uh, don't study it. There's nothing there. You'd be a fool. It's sort of the attitude towards UFOs as well. It's like, you're crazy if you talk about aliens. Right. But there's clearly something um, happening and it should, it's worthy of inquiry and study, no doubt. And it's a mystery and, and. It's on the edge of our, it's kind of like when you have something that's like just, just beyond your range of vision and you kind of see there's something there. I know there's something there, but I can't make it out. It's kind of like that with crop circles. It's like, what is going on here? I don't get like, these are above my pay grade to decode, mm-hmm. but they're, they're evidence. They're like real things you can weigh and measure. It's tangible. I mean, it's there, they're there. Yeah, so they're I mean, there. it's not like somebody just said something or took a picture and photoshopped it. I mean, they pop up overnight and then the evidence is there. And then, you know, like, like you said, you can speculate all day where they come from, who made them, but really the, the real nugget of truth there is, is what are they, what are they saying? What's the decoding there? Because there's, there's clearly messages, which I think would bring me to an even larger idea is, I mean, is geometry and mathematics is a language for communicating something. Um, and if you think about it, this is the way I always kind of felt that it's 
even a more efficient way of communication than verbally expressing language because this feels very clunky. But when you have a symbol that has many intricacies in it, and it could mean lots of different things or even tell a story, and it's one thing. Um, so I, I've always felt that if those things popped up, it's, it's a form of communication, no matter who made it. And then really studying it and understanding it and what it is, I think is absolutely critical. Um, I've often wondered why crop circles aren't like the focus of intense scientific debate in universities, but it seems to be not that at all. It's completely dismissed. And I find that there's a tragedy there because we, uh, we could probably learn a great deal from these messages, even if they're made by this guy who just makes them all. There, there was this thing about Doug and Dave and how they claim to make them all, and now they're both deceased, I think. Right. And um, they're still being made. And, and what kind of gets me is like, how many art projects go on for many decades without, with everything anonymous? Mm-hmm. I think people are too egoic to like make fantastic designs and not claim any credit for them. Like for, the problem, for right? year after year after year. And like, what is the point of that? Why, why are you doing that? You know? Right. Yeah. But where's the motivation for somebody to go and make a highly intricate crop circle replying to a message from 27 years before that I think Carl Sagan sent out. And then like, th- that's a quite an elaborate hoax to not get paid on. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it should be celebrated as an art project at the least. It should be an art form, right? I would love to see human beings go out there and make these things. I mean, they're absolutely beautiful and it should be the farmers, the farmers often wouldn't agree. Right. Um, so that's something to consider there. I mean, it can become kind of a political and economic issue as well. So, um. I don't know, but it, it is one of the, the great mysteries of our times about these crop circles that consistently appear in, in the fields every year. And why do they mostly appear in Wiltshire? That's very interesting. I, they, they, and, they are found around the world, but there is a high concentration there. And, and why is that the area where, where like Stonehenge and, and Avebury and, and a lot of the Neolithic uh, things are in that area? And a lot of people know what Stonehenge is, but Avebury, maybe you could speak to that a little bit because that's a that's a, a lesser known structure, correct? I, I've been there. Um, it's a earthwork uh, kind of hinge, um, and it's got upright stones that are really massive. Um, and I remember, you know, having a like there's this enormous trees that are there that are hundreds of years old. And just getting a sense of a connection with the deep past is really tangible there. Um, I know John Michelle and, and Robin Heath have inca- uh, written about the metrology, how that's connected with Stonehenge in kind of an elaborate uh, like triangle. And I can't recall all the details right now, but it's very precisely oriented in such a way that you wouldn't expect Neolithic people to know. And yet there it is. Um, so I, again, I question whether the people that made these monuments were cognitively aware of what they were doing or whether they were kind of impulsed or led to do what they do. Sure. And I, and I, I think that that phenomenon is still operative today in that we, we might end up building certain buildings in certain places, but it might've all, we might've been kind of played by a higher intelligence to make these things happen in exactly the way that they're done. Hmm. Such that I start to speculate that maybe human beings are a little bit like mound building termites in that we make this elaborate architecture of this mound that has like air conditioning and farming and buttressing and all this complexity that the individual ant mind cannot possibly understand. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow collectively they build this incredible complex monument that requires a different order of intelligence. And I wonder if human beings aren't like that in that we, we oftentimes are encoding these patterns on the earth in such a way that individually we're not cognitively aware of it. 
Mm-hmm. But when we, when we zoom out, we see that there's a pattern being made. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think that there, there's probably consciousness at different levels here. Maybe there's a human species mind that's coordinating the actions of all the individual worker humans going around doing things. I don't know. But I think it's worthwhile contemplating that, if, especially if you get beyond materialism. See, if you're wedded to materialism, all of that talk of, of consciousness beyond the meat of the human brain is completely uh, insane. If you see that consciousness is part of the fabric of reality through the double slit experiment, you can see that maybe we have it all inside out and backwards, and maybe consciousness is the ground of being, and that everything is in consciousness. And if that is the case, and I'm arguing for idealism here as opposed to materialism, then why wouldn't there be higher order intelligences? If everything is mental and imagined by one mind or another, there's nothing that would prohibit such a um, higher order intelligence from existing. You see? Mm. And I see materialism as a necessary step in our evolution, but I see it as a complete simplification of reality. Mm-hmm. into a, a true dumbing down and a literal a literalization of everything into the flat the most flat view that you can take mm-hmm. and i think that's useful to a certain degree to do that but i think that you lose out on a lot of complexity when you do that a lot, yeah. of, use, a lot of useful things to us as a species that we ought to unpack and look at our ancestors seem to understand this better than we do now yeah i mean i think that I always like to ponder, like, what what were they up to? You know, I mean, they they obviously had a great deal of intellect, sophistication, um, things that we are sort of rediscovering now. And then I always get fascinated by, you know, hearing about how Pythagoras went there and spent 30 years there learning high-level mathematics, philosophy. You know, what what was it like to go there? And I mean, that that's a lifelong pursuit. And maybe understanding and unraveling these mysteries is really a lifelong pursuit. It's not something you're going to get in a conference seminar over the weekend. Um, you, I mean, if you really want to understand what it means to be a human being, it's a lifelong pursuit of education and discovery. And multi-generational, I don't think that even in one human lifetime is even going to scratch the surface, but it's a good start, mm-hmm. you know, but you might, you might want to reincarnate a whole bunch of times. And that to me, we needed all our conversation really, about that. <laughs> you know, um, ancient Egypt was around for 3000 years as the same civilization. I mean, right. that is staggering. They, they were doing something right. If they were able to have such longevity, you know, right. And, and what, and we're going to pass on over 3000 years. I mean, the United States is a baby, you know, and where are we going to be in another 2000 years from now when we have this accumulation of knowledge, assuming that the internet and a library of information can keep going on yet, where are we going to be? And so that's maybe on Mars. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I may have seen, it seems like my head that way. Um, but look, Scott, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. I want to respect your time. Um, I'd love to have you back on. I mean, these are, massive topics. We could talk for days on this, but I really want to thank you for, uh, for taking an hour and, and chatting with me. Really enjoyable. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for talking with me today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you like this content and you want to see more like it, please hit that like button and that subscribe button. It really helps out the channel.